Hello from the members of First United Methodist Church in Royce City. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you find it meaningful and relevant. You're invited to join us for worship anytime, and you can learn more about our worship options, location, and small group opportunities by visiting our website, fumcroycecity.org. May God bless you as you listen to His Word proclaimed. Reverend Richard Dunnigan is here this morning. He's a retired Methodist pastor from the North Texas Conference. About 42 years he served in that capacity. He led First Church Carrollton as well as Lake Highlands United Methodist Church. He's also served in our conference as the director of church extension. Extension? I got it. All right. He's also uh, been an adjunct professor at Asbury Theological Seminary. Um, And he's kind of a jack of all trades. I hear he enjoys racquetball and consulting, international travel. Um, His wife, Teresa, and he have three daughters and three grandchildren, and I hear that his favorite of all things he does is pamper the grandbabies. So without further ado, would you give a warm welcome, please, to Reverend Richard Dunnigan this morning? It is good to be with you, and uh, it is a privilege to stand in Chris's pulpit. Uh, He's a man that I have uh, known and respected for many years. And uh, you, uh, you are blessed, uh, you know that, you know, to have him as your pastor, and, uh, and I, I, I rejoice in getting to be here. I normally like to start off by telling some story about the pastor, uh, which may or may not have anything to do with the truth, uh, but uh, given that uh, Chris is, uh, why he's out uh, with, uh, with the passing of his mother, uh, we'll let that go. Uh, he did invite me for today, and uh, it's interesting, uh, this Sunday, this particular Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, has a name, in, uh, in England at least, in the church in England. You know what this, this Sunday is called, Sunday after Easter? It's called Low Attendance Sunday. <laughs> that's the truth. That is true. Uh, and, and that's because people, you know, we work hard, and, and then Easter comes, and it's so exciting, and it's so, so full, and, and you work so much. And then people get tired, but you are the true champions because you're here this morning on Low Attendance Sunday. So uh, welcome to being a true disciple of Christ. Uh, Well, I want to begin by telling you a piece of good news. I don't know if you've ever ever thought of it this way or not, uh, but when it comes to the really important issues that we all must face, we all must must, uh, wrestle with, the answers to those issues really turn out to be pretty simple, pretty simple. For example, big question, is there a God or not? Well, the range of options are really just two. One, yes, two, no. That's all the options there are. Either there is a God or there's not a God. And sure, figuring out, you know, whether which one is right may seem like a daunting task for us. But once once you get there, you know, it's either yes or no. And once you decide which it is, it really sets the course of your life thereafter. And since you're sitting in church this morning, I'm guessing that you're at least leaning towards the yes side of that question. So there is a God, yes. So that brings us to the second big, but ultimately also simple answer question. And that is, how do I know what God is like? Now, here it might seem that we've met our match because, you know, you can't see God. Even with a telescope or with a microscope, you can't see God. You can't encounter God through 
the five senses. And, and, and this has been such a problem for, for many that, uh, that with the normal rules of observation not applying that many scientific types just give up and say, well, there, there can't be a God, you know, because I, I can't make him fit into any of my experiments. But wait, there are at least a few things that we can surmise about God just by looking at the universe. You know, we, we know that God must be, you know, just big and powerful because the universe is so huge. And we know that God has majesty because look at the creation that he has created with all its intricacies and, 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 and the big and small, the different sizes and, and, and all the different textures and, and all the different things that are in this universe. And we know that God cares at least enough to give us chocolate. And you think about that. Chocolate is not required for life to happen. <coughs> and yet there's chocolate. Well, chocolate's not required for life unless you've had it before. Then, then, then you know, I'm going to have some for lunch. Uh, but, but, you know, we, we live in a, in a universe that, that does bespeak of God some, but it doesn't really tell us the things about God that we really want to know. You know, is God personal? What is his character? Does God have a personal will for humankind? For me, what God is really like. That's what we want to know. Well, here we, we, uh, we, we don't know that from our observations through our senses. So what are, are there other methods, that, and what would they be, for understanding what God is like. Well, it turns out there really are, the answer is pretty simple. Again, there are two. There are two possible methods for knowing what God is like. First, we could rely upon our own reason or our own personal experiences. In effect, though, we would be actually making it up for ourselves out of our own imagination. That's, that's really what that's about. The only other option would be for God to somehow reveal himself to us, to make himself known. That's it. If we believe in God, we either make up his characteristics for ourselves or we have to rely upon his self-revelation. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't begin to imagine that I could somehow conjure up ideas about God and that they would necessarily conform to the reality of the divine. I ain't that smart. And but what about all of us pooling our thoughts together? Well, even there, I think it falls short. Not to mention the fact that our ideas are contradictory to one another and, and we're all over the map in our thoughts about God. So we, without a, a personal revelation from God of who he is, we really don't know much about God. Well, that's where Christianity says, hey, that is our claim. That God has personally revealed himself unto us. And he's done that in two powerful ways. Through the word written and through the word incarnate. That is, through the Bible, the word written, and through Jesus, his son, the word incarnate. But wait a minute. When you think about it, we don't really know much of anything about Jesus apart from the Bible. So it really is all about the scriptures for us. 
Now that brings us to the third big issue. If the Bible is truly God's word, as we say, God's self-revelation, then is it, is it written in such a way that I can understand it? Because it doesn't do much good if, if it's written, but I can't understand it. So big question again, but the only, the, the only two choices for answers are one yes or two no. Either it's understandable or it's not. Here, I'd like you to think for a moment about what the purpose of this revelation is. It's so that we can know God. It is God's will that we know him, that we understand him, that we come to have an intimate relationship with him. That's what the scripture is about. So that brings us to ask the question then, well, if, if, if it is God's will for us to know him, would he make his revelation really, really hard to understand or as understandable as possible for us human beings. One significant tiff-off here is seen in the language that God used for his ultimate revelation, the New Testament. You know, the New Testament was written in Greek. Why Greek? Well, it was the one language that was spread throughout the, the uh, whole of the Roman Empire and beyond. Greek was spoken, of course, in Greece, but it was also spoken in Italy. It was spoken in Egypt. It was spoken in Israel. It was spoken all the way to Babylon and beyond with the trade routes all the way to India and China. It was almost over the whole world. People understood Greek. But do you know that there were actually two different kinds of Greek? There was the, the precise and high Greek of classical Greek, which was what Plato and Aristotle and the poets and the philosophers used. And then there was what was known as Koine Greek, which was the language of the marketplace, the, the language that everyday people spoke. Now, which one do you think God caused the New Testament to be written in? It was Koine Greek all the way. Why? Because it's the language that everybody understood. It wasn't highfalutin, but God wanted you and me to get it. He wanted us to understand. And I got to tell you, sometimes we sell ourselves short. But you can read the Bible and you can understand it. Most of the time, we, we don't think we can understand it, so we don't read it. But the more you read it, the more you will understand. Because this word is written so that you may know God. He has a message for us. You know, it's been almost uh, 20 years since the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. You may re remember he was so young and, and vital in, in, in those days, but he died in a plane crash. You may remember he, he died in a plane that he was piloting. He was on his way to a wedding. He flew off from New Jersey out over the Atlantic towards uh, uh, Massachusetts, but he never made it. It seems he encountered a storm, and the problem they decided was pilot error, and the error was he had never learned to fly by instruments. He only flew by sight, and when he was covered up by the storm, he couldn't see and evidently crashed and was killed. In the wake of that, the Chicago Tribune ran an article by an amateur pilot named Stephen Hedges. And Hedges told about an uh, instrument flying lesson that he once took himself. Uh, he, he said, I flew the headings and the turns as instructed, but even with 10 hours of instrument flying experience already in my logbook, 
I was amazed at how quickly the plane slid into a banking turn if I'd averted my attention for just a few moments. The first time it happened, a pang of panic shot through me, a momentary fear that made it even more difficult to comprehend what the plane was doing. But then I heard my instructor, who sat next to me, calmly say, watch your bank. I quickly leveled the plane. The trick, you see, is to keep your gaze fixed on the instruments who know where you really are and what attitude your, your plane is taking. If you do that, you'll be fine. But if you don't, if you get distracted, if you take your eyes off the instruments who know where you are and what's really happening with you, you could be headed for disaster. That's really a good illustration, I think, of where we are. So often in our lives, we, it's like we're flying blind. We're in a fog or in the dark, and we don't know what to do. So often we encounter difficulties in our own life or challenges from our culture, and we're not sure really what is right or wrong or which way we should go. It's then that we really need to pay attention to the guidebook that knows God's word that's given to us. A wise old apostle wrote to young Timothy, instructed him on, on uh, how he should keep his life going in the right direction. This is 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've been know, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. First here, he notes to Timothy who it is that he's already learned, that, that he's able uh, that this, what this is about is that he would get wisdom from it. He wouldn't be wise on, on how to take the math test on Tuesday or, or what stock to invest in next, but wise about something far more important, wise about salvation through Christ Jesus, as verse 15 phrases it. That is, the Scriptures can teach you everything you need in order to live a forever life beginning right now. Timothy had learned this from two of the most important people in his life, from his mother and his grandmother. Who's taught you the scriptures? Was it a parent, a grandparent, a Sunday school teacher? How have you come to know the scriptures? Those people should be commended because they give us one of life's most precious gifts, an acquaintance, a knowledge of the scripture from God. If you're not doing that for your own children, you know, I'd encourage you to start. You know, with, with young children, you just read some of the Bible stories. As kids get older, you begin to, to, to describe some of the, the principles that are there and, 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 and even tell how it is that you go about making decisions in your life. You know, share those biblical examples. For example, when your child lies, I'm not calling your children liars, but uh, I'm just saying, you know, kids are kids. When your child lies, then, then why not show them where the Bible says, don't lie? And then show them an example of somebody in the Scripture who did lie, like Peter did, 
uh, in John 18 when he said, I don't even know Jesus because he was afraid he too would be arrested like Jesus had been. And then how bad Peter felt until three chapters later, Jesus cornered him and forgave him. And it changed his life. You know, that's, that's what we need to do. Because if you teach your kids, your grandkids, the kids of your church, you will be a person who deserves to be commended. Now, if the kids were still in the room, which one kid, um, you know, I'd be telling the kids, you need to ask your parents to read the Bible with you if they're not already doing it. And I would have told them, lean over there right now and say, Mom, would you read the Bible to me? And Dad, you join in. You could learn something too. Well, I, I, that's making trouble. But you know what? We spend time with our kids helping them with their homework. Isn't the Bible at least as important as homework? In fact, get this. I believe that salvation is more important than education. Let that sink in. But we act as if education's what's important and salvation, hmm, I'll take them to Sunday school. No, help them know the scriptures for themselves. Paul continues his message to Timothy. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, your Bible may say all scripture is inspired by God, and that's true, and it's really what the meaning of this passage is. But literally in the Greek, it says all scripture is God-breathed. I like that image. And back over in Genesis, God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living being. Likewise, God breathes into the scriptures so that we can draw life out of it. Same thing. But Paul didn't stop there. He says, uh, he, he goes on to tell exactly what it's for. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. These are the four things that you ought to be getting out of your Bible reading. Teaching. Teaching. What's that about? Well, it means to impart God's standards. To impart God's standards. I remember when I was in sixth grade, my best friend was named Phil Craft. It's been a long time since I was in sixth grade. Phil was a great guy. Phil was a great guy. Not only was he good at choosing friends. Hello, he's my best friend. Not only was he good at choosing friends, he was also the fastest kid in the school. I mean, Phil the Flash, he could run. I, I call him the fastest man alive because he was so fast. Just, just loved watching him run. But a, a funny thing happened a few years later when we went off to high school. Phil was in a race, and one of the guys that was racing against him was a fellow named Gary Furr. And something happened that I did not believe was possible. Phil Kraft came in second to Gary Furr. And I thought, this can't be. Is Phil sick? Did he not hear the starter's pistol? What's going on? But I had this sinking feeling in my gut that somehow it was true. Phil was not the fastest man alive. Gary Furr had beaten him. And from that day on, I've remembered Gary Furr's name. I never met him personally, but I've remembered his name and have not liked him. I probably need to repent. Uh, according to the children's sermon, I probably need to repent. But you know what? The problem was my standard had been set by L. O. Donald Elementary School. 
And, and you know, it, it, Phil was not the fastest man alive. My only real joy in that track season was at the end of the track season in the city meet, Gary Furr was beaten by a hot shot from South Oak Cliff High School. And I cheered, even though he was in my school. Uh, but you know what? During that day, active then and in his prime in the world was Bullet Bob Hayes, who set the Olympic record for the 100-meter dash and the world record in the, in the Olympics. And then he went on to star with the Dallas Cowboys as a receiver. Amazing. And now all of Bob Hayes' records have been totally obliterated. The problem was that I didn't grasp just what, what the real standard is. Athletic standards keep changing. But you know what? Athletic standards are not the only, or certainly not the most important standards in the world. There are things like moral standards. Who sets the moral standards? Well, it could be some little local group, or it could be God who has set them in the scriptures, and they don't change. They don't change. Well, God's given us his word so that we will know what his standards are. The second thing that the Bible's useful for comes naturally here, and it is rebuke. Now, rebuke is a great old term that we don't use anymore, but boy, do we practice it every day. Turn on Facebook. Look on Twitter. Oh, man, do we know how to rebuke? To rebuke means just to, to call someone out for their misdeeds. And we're good at that. But the Bible does the same thing. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That's rebuke. But let me hasten on. The third thing that the Bible is useful for is, is for correction. Now, don't confuse correction with, with somehow some kind of rebuke. It's not that. It's not about punishment in the scriptures. It's not like the Texas Department of Corrections that chunks you into prison. But the correction that God's word is talking about here is, is a word that literally means to take something that's in the dirt and set it upright. That's what God does for us. When we've fallen face down in the dirt, our life is, is just destroyed. He picks us up. He brushes us off. And he adopts us into his own family. That is correction in the scriptures. He, he corrects our sad situation by lifting us out of the dirt and setting us upright. But the final thing that God's word is useful for is for training in righteousness. What this means is that God grants us a way to, to know what to do to live that forever life now, to live a good life, a fulfilled life, a life that is pleasing to us and to God. Scripture teaches us how to have the highest and the best. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and, and so many other things. So that, so that God teaches us how to love not just our friends and people who love us, but even how to love our enemies. Teaches us how to have peace, not just in good times and, 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 and happy times, but when times are at their worst. It teaches us how to be gods in every situation. Friends, God has given us the scriptures. And I pray that you will never, never let anyone cheat you out of them. 
Because you know what? There are people all around us who are trying to tell us, oh, well, you, you, you can't know what the Scripture means. You can't know what God's really like. They'll tell you, well, hey, you know, this, this Scripture, it, it, it doesn't apply anymore. It, oh, that's, oh, that's old-fashioned. You, you, you don't want to go there. No. It doesn't mean what it says. It's no longer relevant. But hey, God's word is given to communicate an eternal God to you and me so that you will understand him and know him. That you will personally be opening yourself up to him so that he can give himself to you. Listen, your eternal soul is at stake here. Your eternal soul is at stake here. So let me ask you this. Who are you going to rely on to teach you what God is like? I tell you, for me, I'm going to rely upon St. Paul and the gospel writers and the rest. Instead of some preacher from Paducah or, or, or some professor from Princeton. I'm going to rely upon God's word. And I'm not going to get my understanding of God from some bumper sticker. But from reading the scriptures through. So let's breathe. Let's review. Is there a God? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. How can I know what he's like? Make it up for myself or depend upon God's self-revelation? Well, I'm going to trust the Bible. Uh, are the scriptures understandable to me or are they just too hard to grasp? I can read it for myself and know what it means. There's one final question that we need to consider this morning before we're done, and that's application. How do I apply what I learn in the scriptures? And I think that's really the, the, the question, the way I like to phrase it that, that helps it to hit home about application is this. Will I stand in judgment over the Bible or let the Bible stand in judgment over me? You see, we like to stand in judgment over the scriptures. But God's word actually stands in judgment over us. This is true application. In the little letter of James, James notes that the devil actually believes in God. You know, it's like we used to say, well, flip you a fish. Big deal. It's like a trained seal. It, but that doesn't change him. What really does is what you do with that faith, with that trust. So the question is, will I allow the scriptures to teach me how I should live? Or will I misrepresent the scriptures meaning in order to cover my favorite sin. Because that's what we tend to do. It's so easy, of course, to accept certain parts of the Bible. Like God loves me. I like that. Oh, yeah. But what about when God says, love your enemies? Oh, not so much. Those are a challenge to us. Or, or what about when the Bible has something that challenges my favorite sin? Will I adopt his standards? Will I accept his rebuke? Will I allow him to correct me? Will I accept and follow the teaching that he has for how to live 
my life for him. This is the final test. And it's really only here that we can actually claim to be his disciples. Once again, as James said, faith without actions is just dead. Friends, we tend to let ourselves off the hook way too easily. And here I'm confessing as much as I'm preaching. We do. We pick and choose from God's word like it was some kind of a menu. You know, there's certain things on it I really like and certain things on it I don't like. So I always only order these things that I do like. The others, I just leave them behind. We're wanting to establish a vital personal relationship with the God who is. We need to listen to the word of the God who is as he's breathed it out for us. Committing ourselves, all that we are, all that we have, all that we hope to be, to him. I read a bumper sticker, not bumper sticker, a meme on Facebook a couple weeks ago. I just thought it was really great. It asked a question. What's the difference between God and us? And the answer is, God never thinks he's us. Hmm. Mm. Friends, let God be God. Let him direct your life. Let him inform you what is right or wrong, what is good or bad, what his will is for your life. Accept him as he has revealed himself to us and experience the true joy of fellowship with him. Friends, Read the Bible. There's a free gift inside. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have breathed life into us through the scriptures. And that you would give us more and more of that life. I pray, God, that you would help us now to commit ourselves once again to you as you have revealed yourself, not in some made-up way in our own minds, but as you've revealed yourself to us so that we may know you and the joy of the resurrected Christ. These things we pray in his name. Amen.